Our scripture reading today is from Matthew chapter 16, and I'll begin reading with verse 21. Here, here's the context. Jesus has been with his disciples. He's been teaching them along the way. But the, the, the revelation is becoming greater all the time, and now it's time for him to tell them about the time of what's going to happen in Jerusalem and that he's going to die, that he's going to be raised from the dead. And this is the first account of that taking place. It is Matthew chapter 16 in which he tells them about what's going to happen. Contained in this passage of Scripture is what I think of as the greatest challenge that we face. And that is, how is it that we deny ourselves? Think about how hard that is to do. How is it that we take up our cross? How is it that we follow after him in all things? Because this is what he is telling us to do. And we're going to look at that challenge of taking up the cross and following after Christ. Matthew 16 Verse 21, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, never Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. When I read that verse, I think, that's not just Simon Peter, that's me. I, I, I have human concerns. Sometimes those get in the way of the things of God. Sometimes those get in the way of the things that God wants me to do, and I need to get beyond that. You have human concerns, not concerns about the things of God. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple, must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man, Jesus is speaking of himself, for the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Truly, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. I don't know if you saw it this week, but the Lego company had a, had a birthday this week. August the 10th, 1932, they, they manufactured the first set 
of Legos. Now, that's amazing in itself. By the way, everybody here, every family, I'm sure, has at least one Lego somewhere. Now, you may have a box, you may have a set, but most everybody's at least got one Lego under the couch or in a corner or in a play box somewhere along the way. In fact, do you know which company has manufactured more tires than any other company? It's the Lego company. Because every set, almost every set, has a little wheel in it, and you use it for all kinds of things. Do you know that Legos are made the same way they're always, they've always been made? And so if you can find that one piece from 1960 or whenever it was, and you buy another set, it fits in perfectly. If you take one of those two-by-four Lego bricks, if you have six of those, now I didn't count these, I'm just repeating what I read, you can make 95 plus million different figures from those six Lego bricks. I was skiing one year in Vail, Colorado. And every day I would walk by on the way to the ski slope, I'd walk by an automobile over to my right. I didn't think much about it. It did have some unusual colors in it, but I didn't think much about it until I walked over and got closer and the whole car, a sedan, was made out of Legos. I read the card that was there with it. I forget what it was. Tens of thousands of Legos. My one question was this. Where would you start to build a car out of Legos? And what would be the process of finally putting the last Lego into place? And I want to tell you, I have an unscientific way of looking at life, and I have no idea where I would start, and I have no idea where I would end. And sometimes to me, my life in Christ feels that way. How do I get started? And how do I take step two? And how do I get to the end and find that I've been faithful and obedient to God? How do I get from where I am to where God wants me to be? I think of that as, as the initial challenge of being a believer. It's not, I'm going to be better it's not I'm going to try harder. It's not I'm going to start going to church. How do I start the process and how do I take the next step? Now, I know there are a lot of people who have not started the process. And I want this sermon to be a help to you in beginning the process. 
And I simply can't urge you enough to let that time of starting the process be today. I cannot plead with you enough more than to say that this is the day of salvation as the Bible says and I plead with you to let this be the day. But I know that there are more of you who need to take the second step. You've made the first step, but you haven't moved forward with what God wants you to do. It is the will of God that you would become like Christ. It is the will of God that you would, you would begin the process of moving forward in Christ. If you were going to use a graph to graph your Christian faith, what would it look like? Here's what it should look like. Obviously, the beginning point should be down here. And obviously, the ending point should be up here. Is that the way your life in Christ looks? Or could it be that it's inverted? And that you've never taken that second step. And that you've never begun that process. There is the challenge of growing in Christ and becoming like him. Let me give you five steps to take. The first one is so obvious. And that is that you must commit your life until the Lord. You must begin the process. And the process begins when we open our lives to God and we trust him. Jesus had been with his disciples. We don't know how much time. Uh, no more than three years at this point. Maybe he had been with them two years or a year and a half. We don't know. But he is coming to the point where they've got to they've take a step. They've got to understand what's going to happen. They've got to, to begin the process of knowing what they are to do. And Jesus makes the bold statement, if anyone wants to be my disciple, and the disciples in the way he is using it is not just 12 men that have been chosen, but the disciples are all those who are following after him. And at this point, there may have been a large group of people, maybe, maybe quite a number of people. We think by the end of the process, the number of disciples were maybe somewhere between 50 and 120. Because on the day of Pentecost, there were 120 in the upper room. So that makes sense to us. Never a large group of people. But here's what he says. If you want to be my disciple, you have to do something. You have to deny yourself. You have to take up your cross, not physically. How do we know that? Because we don't know of any disciples who went around with Jesus physically carrying their cross. They understood that he was giving a spiritual lesson. And afterwards, Christians, Paul on his missionary journeys, didn't carry a cross around. It's okay to carry a cross around, but that's not what this meant. 
They understood that he was talking about something radical that was going to happen in their life. They were going to deny themselves. They were going to quit thinking about purely, merely human concerns and think about God's concerns. Think about that as what it means to be a Christian. I, I am leaving behind merely Christian concerns, and I am following after the things that concern God, and the things that matter to him are going to be the things that matter to me. Let him deny himself. Let him take up his cross, and let him follow after me. Here's what I would say to you. If you say, I don't know if I have done that or not. I don't know if I'm a Christian or not. To be a Christian means that you commit your way unto the Lord. It is simple to do, but it is profound when you do so. It is simple so that all may believe. It is simple so that there is not something where we see it as a complex process and things that we have to go through in order to be saved. No, it is simple to be saved, but it is something you do. It is a commitment in which you say unto God, God, I do want to deny myself. I do want to take up my cross. I do want to follow after you have to make a commitment there's the second step in this process of of getting from where we are to where God wants us to be and that is that we must be strong and courageous on Wednesday nights I'm I'm teaching from the book of Joshua an exciting book a, a very amazing book it's set within about 12 to 1400 BC. Now I had to look up all this stuff. The bronze, remember we had the Stone Age scientists, the stone and historians talk about the Stone Age. And then the Bronze Age, the Bronze Age started about 3300 BC. It ended about 1200 BC. And then you have that was the the Bronze Age and then you had the Iron Age about 1200 B.C. This morning early, I read a report from Israel from a a four-year archaeological dig at Tel Shiloh. Tel simply means, it means a place, a high place where a city would be built and then through the centuries as one city was destroyed, it kept getting bigger and bigger, a little tell. And they excavated tell Shiloh. And they think they found the gates that Eli the priest sat at when he died, when he heard that the ark of the Lord had been, had been destroyed, had been captured. And the archaeologist there says that everything that we have seen fits with biblical history. 
And that would be 12 to 1400 years before Jesus. It wasn't long ago that people were saying that all of the ancient things you find in the Bible were all made up. There was no David. There was no kingdom of Israel. There was no capital in Jerusalem. There was no time when David took Jerusalem. And one by one, all of those objections have been, have been destroyed by the physical evidence of what people find in the country of Israel. And, and when I think of Joshua, 12 to 1400 B.C., it is an amazing thing of what you find there. The first chapter is, tells us to be strong and courageous. And here's the way I take that. I always take that. Man, it's time to take up your sword. It's time to join the army. It's time to fight the battles, and I have to be strong and courageous. And when I was nine years old, I admired Joshua because of that reason. And as a man, it just seems right. Here is, here is the way we're to be, strong and courageous, and it means fighting a battle. I have come to understand that's not what God meant at all. Yes, they were going to go to Jericho and take it. And yes, they were going to go into the land of Canaan and take it. And yes, they were going to cross the Jordan at flood stage. And they were going to see the hand of God. And they needed to be strong and courageous for all of that. But that's not, that's not what it meant. You know where, what we need to be strong and courageous for? When you look to Joshua 1, do you know what God was talking about? He was talking about being obedient. He was talking about, I want you to do exactly what I tell you to do. And I want you to follow the teachings of Moses and don't turn to the right or the left, but follow them exactly. Being strong and courageous is absolutely necessary for being obedient. And if we're going to take the next steps with God, we have to be obedient. By the way, last week when I taught from Joshua, I taught the second half of chapter 1 that talks about shared leadership, that talks about preparation, that talks about following the ways of God, that talks about the people cooperating together. And I said, I said what everybody should say. Isn't it amazing what can be accomplished when a group of people all pull in the same direction and all cooperate? That's what God was saying to those tribes. Time to cooperate. Time to work together. Now, all of that I'd planned. The next statement I'd made I'd not planned. And I said, wouldn't it be amazing if we, about 125 people, if we all prayed in the same way, if we all prayed for the same things, if we all came together and carried the, our request up to God in heaven, what would happen then? And then I gave them an impromptu challenge, and I'd like to share it with you. Some of you have read about it. I'd like to ask, I asked them and I'd like to ask you to pray that God 
would give us a fruitful harvest. A soul harvest, if you're willing to call it that. That God would give it. What would happen if all of us pray day by day that for, for those people that God calls to our mind when we think about praying for people who need to know the Lord, what would happen if we prayed every day? What if we, what if we prayed that, that among the congregation where we worship and serve, that there would be a soul harvest, a fruitful harvest? If you're one of those people who has is, who is not yet come to faith in the Lord, it may be that there is somebody who is calling your name in prayer and God's Holy Spirit is touching your heart, drawing you to himself. We must be strong and courageous. A third step that we need to take to move forward in our faith, to, to follow Christ, to deny ourselves, to take up the cross, is that we need to deal with our behavior. And we need to correct our character. And we need to understand that God has a goal for you and me. And our goal is that we would be like Christ. And that he would be reforming our character day by day. And that our lives would be pleasing to God. Now, let me tell you two people who are looking at your character. I'll give you three people. The first one is God himself. God is very interested in your character. God is very interested that your character become like Christ in every the second person is the person with whom you are the closest in life. For most of us, that's a husband or a wife. Maybe it's your single mom or single dad. It's your child. The third person who is very interested in your character is the person who is not a believer but looking to you to find out how a believer lives. Those three people are tremendously interested in your character. How do you correct your character? Let me give you four little steps. The first one is simply to ask God, God, what do you think about my character? God, what would you want me to change about my character? God, what is there that I should be doing that I'm not doing? Or what is there I am doing that I shouldn't be doing? God, I want to know what you want me to do. Now, I have no idea the, the varied ways that you correct your character. All I know is that the only times I've ever made real progress in my life is when I did exactly what I've said to you. Ask God to show you what he wants you to do. Ask God to show you how he wants you to change. In other words, what we have to do is we have to run the plays that are in God's playbook. Because our problem is, I want to run the place. The problem is, I want to tell God, God, 
here's what I, here's what I need you to do. Now you make it happen. In other words, I call the play, and God, you make it work. Almost all of us, in some way or the other, we, we, we relate to God in that way. God, it's your job to make me look good. It's your job to make all of the things I've done work out okay. And I'm going to pray and ask you to do that. But you know, as long as you get away from yourself and your, your way of thinking, as long as I get away from myself and my selfishness and start with God, I know intuitively that I'm supposed to run God's place, not my place. And so we ask God, God, what do you want to do? And we work from God's playbook. A second step in correcting your character is to confess your sin, your shortcomings, your mistakes, your blatant, angry way that you relate to other people, the way you relate to God, and you come clean before God. That's what confession is. It is simply coming clean before God. God, I confess. And you know that sounds like an easy thing to do and still, until you start doing it. And then you find how difficult it is to say to God, God, I come clean. But when we come clean with God, with ourselves, and the Apostle John said, if you've harmed another person, you confess to that person. When we come clean, all of a sudden we become free. All of a sudden, we become liberated. All of a sudden, the, the load that is on us is taken away, and life takes on a new meaning when we confess. The Apostle John said, if you confess your sin, then God is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. We have to confess and we have to come clean before God. The third thing that we have to do is we have to repent. Now, let's think about the word repentance. Repentance means to turn. It means to change your mind about something. It's interesting, isn't it? I know of no one who uses the word repent outside of this context, the church, the Bible, the teachings of Scripture. I know nobody who uses that, and I think there's a reason. It is because the world rejects the whole idea of conversion and repentance and that we must change and that things must be different. But we must. We must change our minds. We must say to God, God, I want to leave all of those old practices behind i want to renounce them i don't want to have anything to do with them now lest you think that is a declaration of perfection it isn't it is a declaration that says god i don't want this anymore and i do change my mind and i am turning to become a new person but please do not miss this part of the process repentance as we begin our life of commitment to Christ and as we go through our lives, repentance is absolutely necessary. The fourth step of correcting your character is to give everyday 
to God. You ever do this? Come to church, have a good experience, you bring your Bible with you, go to a connect group class, everything is good. You've, you've had a good day, you've seen people you know and love, and you spend a few minutes with them, you go out to the parking lot, you take your Bible, you reach over the seat, you throw it in the back seat, you take off, and next Sunday morning, you say, where is my Bible? And what we've done is we've talked about God on Sunday and we've read his word and we thought about it. And for the rest of the week, we've had merely human concerns and we've left God out of our lives. And you know what else you left out of your life? You left the power of God out of your life. You left the power to, to carry through on what you've talked about on Sunday. You've left the, the, the direction of God because you've not looked at his word. We must submit to God daily. We must let him be in control of our lives. I, I know it doesn't matter when you pray and when you read the Bible, but it helps me the most when I do it the first thing in the morning because all of the day and all of its challenges and all of its struggles are before me. So you submit daily to God. We'll talk about that more in just a moment. The fourth step is to, to progressing in God is to create a pathway. Figure out a road map. Figure out which Lego goes on second. Figure out the map and follow the direction. And here I want to give you three, of other, three or four other things to do. In order to be, progress in Christ, you must surround yourself with supportive people. You must surround yourself with people who want to take the next step themselves and who are seeking ways to do so. Those are the people who got to be around us because you know... You go to school tomorrow, you go to work tomorrow, you go home today. Sometimes they're not supportive people around us. And, and it is a struggle because we need people supporting, encouraging us, showing us by example, showing us by praying for us, telling us that they're praying for us. We need to surround ourselves with supportive people who can help us along the way. That's one of the reasons why we again and again try to get you into a connect group. And find a way to help you get into a correct connect group so that you can be surrounded by supportive people. A second step is to seek God's Spirit. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 5 to be filled with the Spirit. Now, without getting into all kinds of linguistics in Greek, in Greek, the Greek language, the word be filled is an amazing verb. Because it's a passive verb. It's not something you do. It's something you allow to be done to you. To be filled with God's Spirit. But it is something, the verb would say, that you do today. Right now. In the present. To be filled with with God's Spirit. And obviously, 
there has to be a willingness and openness to be filled with God's Spirit. That's why I say seek God's Spirit. God, I want to be filled. I want to be obedient to you. To be filled with the Spirit means that you're under the influence of the Spirit. That's why some people say that the beginning of that verse is, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Be under the influence of God's Spirit. The third part of that verb is it's continuous. It is passive. It is present. It is continually. And so seek daily to be filled with God's Spirit. And here's the way it works. If you are full of God's Spirit, you don't have any room for the old person or the sins of the world or the temptations of Satan because you are full, you are filled you are under the influence of the kingdom of God. A third, a third path is to put on the full armor of God. Paul in Ephesians 5 say, be, says be filled with the Spirit. In Ephesians 6 he says put on the full armor of God. Here's the way I did as a kid again. I always thought about the helmet. I always thought about the breastplate. I always thought about the shield. I always thought about the sword. I always thought about the sandals. Well, that's not the part God wants us to think about. He wants us to think about the helmet of salvation. He wants us to think about the breastplate of righteousness. He wants us to talk about the shield of faith. He wants us to talk about the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. He wants us to talk about the feet that are shorn with the word and the power of God. It's the faith, the righteousness, the salvation that gives us the armor that we need to be the people of God and to follow the things of God. We must do that. We must put on God's armor and we must fill our souls with scripture, with prayer, with ministry. And when we do that, we we begin to take the next steps of what God wants us to do. So we commit our ways unto the Lord. We're strong and courageous. We correct our character. We create pathways. And we depend on God to help us all along the way. Because we know that he is in control and he is in charge. And we tell our friends the truth. And our family the truth. And we preach the truth. There's a verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 where Paul is defending himself and his ministry before false teachers. And there are people who are saying, Paul's doing this for money, even though he never received funds from a church. But they're saying he, he's doing this for money. They're saying Paul is doing this because he wants to be known. Paul is doing this so that he can have power over other people. They're saying all of these things. So Paul is defending himself. 
But here are the powerful words that Paul says. These are the words I want to base my preaching on. These are the words I want us to build, let God build his church upon. Here's what Paul said. We do no hocus pocus. We do no clever tricks. We do no dishonest manipulation of the word of God. We speak plain truth. That's the kind of church I want to be a part of. Where we speak plain truth with gentleness and kindness and respect for other people and love in our hearts. But we speak plain truth and we don't depend on hocus pocus and clever tricks. And we certainly don't misuse the word of God. Everything depends on Christ and we have to give it all to him. That's what Jesus meant. Deny yourself. Take up the cross and follow after me. Die to self and live to Christ. Somewhere in the middle of July, I got a text from a former student of mine, a pastor, a student at New Orleans Seminary. And he hardly said anything. He just said, you need to watch this. And so I watched it. And it was of a man by the name of Alistair Begg. He's a pastor in Ohio, about my age, preaching strongly and powerfully the word of God. He grew up in England. He has a Scottish brogue, and it suits him well. And it was in a sermon in which he was talking about, it's not what I do, it's what Christ does. Not what we can accomplish, it's what Christ does in us. And we're not saved by what we do, we're saved by what he did for us. And so he said it this way, he said, so if you go to the gates of heaven and they ask, why are you here? You don't start with the first person singular. I. He says, if you do that, we've got a problem. I believed. I worked hard. I'm good. I, I have continued on in the faith. He says, no, it, it's not that. It's not the first person. It's the third person. It's what he did for me. It's what Christ did for me. I he who knew no sin became sin for me that I might become the righteousness of God. Not what I did, what he did. I surrendered to him. I submitted to him. That's all I've done. He is at work. And then Alistair Begg got off the track, I think. And he said, he said, think about the thief on the cross. He said, what in the world was he thinking? He said, when I get to heaven, I'm going to look that guy up and I'm going to ask, what were you thinking? One moment you were cursing the Son of God with the other thief and the next moment you are hearing, today you will be with me in paradise. What were you thinking? And then Alistair Begg, I think, got a little bit farther off and he said, just imagine that thief on the cross going to heaven and the angel meeting him at the gates and saying, what are you doing here? Alistair Begg said, think about that thief on the cross. You could say to him, 
you know, what are you doing here? You've never been to a Bible study. You've not been a member of the church. You weren't even baptized. And he said, imagine the angel at the gate saying, why are you here? And the man says, I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? I don't know. And with that, the angel sputters and because he doesn't know either. And he said, let me go get my supervisor. So he goes and gets his angel supervisor. And then he comes back. And the angel supervisor looks at him and he says, sir, I know we have a little problem. But we'll just take a few minutes and I think we can resolve the problem of why you were here. And the angel supervisor says, do you... Do you have a clear understanding of the doctrine of justification? And he said, I never heard of it in all of my life. He he said, well, how about the doctrine of Scripture? And the thief just looks at him. Finally, the angel supervisor says, Sir, on what basis are you here? Because the man on the middle cross said, I could come. It's not what you do and I do. It's what God has done for us and we simply Submit our lives unto him. So simple. But eternally profound. And profound for today and tomorrow and every day. When you open your life to Christ. So I want to ask you today to open your life to Christ. God is not a beggar. But I promise you, I plead with you to do this. To open your life to God, to trust him as your Lord and Savior, to give yourself unto him, to trust him, to walk to the front of the church, to to say to a pastor, I have come to publicly profess my faith in Christ. I've come to follow after God. I want him in my life. There will be others of you who need to take a second step and maybe you need to pray here at the steps. Maybe you need to pray with the pastor. I want to ask you to come today and to, to have that fruitful harvest, that soul harvest in which we offer ourselves unto God. So I'm going to ask you to stand with me and I'm going to pray and at the conclusion of my prayer it will be time for you to come. God, we thank you for what Jesus did for us, what we couldn't do for ourselves, but only you can do for us, and we thank you for that. And now I pray, God, that your spirit would be working in people's lives. God, I know that you are. You have told us that if Christ be lifted up, that he will draw all people to himself. And Lord, we have lifted you up in song and prayer and giving and preaching And we lift you up.
and we know you will draw 